Hello everyone, welcome to Tea with Twiggy. I hope you've had a good week. As we speak, this week has been very cold. We've had snow. Uh, not a lot down south, but I know lots up north. I hope it's clearing actually, although it's very pretty and I think the kids enjoyed it. Got them out of the house on their tea trays. <laughs> anyway, this week I'm very excited because I'm talking to a dear friend of mine, an extraordinary artist. He's a potter, he makes tapestries. He also does the most brilliant documentaries on television. His name is Grayson Perry. Hello, Grayson. How are you? Uh, I'm great, I suppose, <laughs> considering I'm in, you know, in the same position as most people on the planet at the moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm lucky. Yeah, I, I say I think we all feel pretty lucky in in our in the people I've talked to anyway, compared to what some people have been going through. Yes, let's not, you know, not play down your own. You know, often, you know, rich people get misery too. <laughs> It's something that's not talked about enough on podcasts, you know. That's true. Let's talk about class. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting because I, I was reading lots of things about you. Mm. I know quite a lot about you, but I was reading and and you at some point was supposedly to have said that your upbringing has a lot to do with how, you know, whether you're working class or middle class or upper class in your taste in things and how you you know choose things in later life do you do you really think that oh hugely i mean you know when when we're buying something in the shop you know we've got our credit yeah. card out and we're about to push it into the machine you know and, and put in yeah. our code that moment your whole life is bearing down on that moment so everything you know your who who you are, your gender, your class, your race, your sex, your age, where you live geographically. Everything is coming down to that. What you have chosen, you know, because it's it's all of that thing. You know what? When we think we say something, we find something nice or attractive or beautiful. It's because you know it, it's a it was a result of all the sort of cultural conditioning throughout our entire lives that come to bear on that. And these things are very emotional and physically embodied through a long, gradual process. I grew up in the 50s yeah. in northwest London, working class. My, I mean, you know, I never wanted for anything. I had a very nice upbringing and my dad had a good job. We weren't rich, but we weren't poor. We always had food. I always got the clothes and toys I wanted. Um, but taste-wise, we had my dad... Um, bought a 1930s house and so it had nice kind of 1930s um, panelled doors and things and my mum wanted everything modern I don't know whether it was going through the war or something and she made my dad <laughs> panel all the doors with plywood so they were flush yeah, I, I, when you're watching those sort of property programs on daytime TV nowadays you get quite a lot of people who say oh I love the minimalist look and what they really mean is empty you know, it's like, it's not minimalist. Minimalist is incredibly refined and expensive uh, aesthetic to achieve in a house. And normally it has to be sort of built in from the architect onwards. Um, you know, it's not just leaving out, you know, it's not just having no pictures and a, and, a, and a sofa with no cushions on it. Horrible. I'd hate that. But no, what I was going to say is when I, 
went out into the world. I didn't pick up. I, I didn't pick up on what my mum had fed into us of wanting everything modern. What she thought of as modern, it wasn't really modern. And and I always lived in places that are period. I love antiques. I love kind of shabby chic, you know, kind of thing. I and anything modern, I kind of steer away from. I would never feel comfortable living in something like that. So, so I wonder where where I got that just from moving around in different circles. Because I suddenly went from this ordinary little schoolgirl in a working class background into this world of so-called glamour and fame. And and I wonder if that had something to do with my taste. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're an unusual case because, you know, you, you, you had that sort of education, I suppose, because of who you were and what you were doing and who you were hanging out with. But also it's not necessarily about the content. It's about the way in which you approach it. So you know, the fact whether you like modern or old houses is hit neither here nor there. It's how you see them in terms of refinement, in terms of whether you're flashy or not flashy, because you can be, have a flashy old house or you can have a very you know low key house. Mm. You can have a very flashy modern house. There's a whole trend, what I often call northern modernism, you know, where it's like, I'm modern me. You know, it's it's kind of slightly glitzy version sort of, of high tech. Uh, contemporary modernism that's a little bit too in your face whereas if you go to somewhere like Holland and Germany where they're used to modernism it's very low-key you hardly notice that actually this house is really tasteful because it's all played down and refined whereas a traditional sort of British working class person wants you to notice every damn penny they've spent and it's going to be on gold and it's going to be on the most high tech things. It's like, that's why, you know, if you think of there's a big divide between the classes and how they spend their money, um, a working class pe- person, I think often feels that they want to spend it on things that are to do with going out in the world. So they want to spend it on their clothes. They want to spend it on their car. They want to spend it on their hair and their makeup, tattoos. They want to, you know, they want to spend it on things that you can see out in the world because often they're not living in particularly uh, houses they want to show off about. Whereas a middle-class person, they'll pile all their money into their house, you know, and then they'll leave the blinds open so everybody walking past in Islington can see what a lovely kitchen island they've got. (laughs) Talking about kitchens, have you got your cup of tea? I've got my cup of tea here, yeah. Peachy tips. No, there's no lapsung souchon or whatever so here. So you're a builder's man. Mm-hmm. Milk and sugar? Uh, no sugar. No, I got myself out of that habit. Oh, did you? I used to be a sugar person when I was young, yeah. Um, d- does that mean you don't eat kind of desserts and chocolate and things like that? Oh, I don't mind. I don't mind the odd bit of chocolate. I don't eat dessert, though. No, we don't. Um, I don't I'm not big on cakes. I mean, Phil, my wife, she's a great cook. And she does sometimes, if she's not on a diet, she'll bake a cake. But I'm never really drawn into eating them that often. I don't like cake, actually. It's one thing. I like chocolate. I love chocolate, but I'm not a cake. Bit newsflash here. Twiggy doesn't like cake. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I'll eat, I'll eat a bit of birthday cake at people's birthday. <laughs> oh. It's the Pope Catholic. <laughs> but I do like my food. I don't want people to think I don't eat. I've always eaten. I always got blamed for not eating. I've always eaten well. I love my food and I love to cook. So put that one to bed. When was the last time we saw each other? Was it 
Oh, I think it was an, a certain very wealthy person's dinner party. Yeah, you, you were my dinner guest, my dinner date, which I was yeah. very happy about. It's, don't you get, when you go to those things with those long tables and you know you're going to be separated from your partner and you think... Oh, That's, you don't want to sit next to your partner at a dinner? No, no do but do don't you do? get nervous thinking, who am I going to be? So I was so relieved you were sitting next to me. I was like, <laughs> yes, thank you, God. <laughs> Uh, that's very sweet of you. Um, um, normally, I mean, yeah, you can get stuck with some people who are quite hard work. That's what alcohol is for, of course. And also, um, I've only, you know, I've only really lost it with people a few times when I thought, you know, you are such an idiot. I'm really going to have to kind of call you out on it. Do I had you? someone like, yeah, there was a guy once. I saw. I was dressed up in, you know, in my nice dress and everything. And this guy immediately, you know, he was an incredible narcissist. And he immediately sort of wanted to sort of prove to me how good he looked in a dress and he had all these photos and, and he went on and on and on about how great he was and how tolerant he was and how nice he was. And um, and, he, and then he said something like, oh, I'm really good with people. And I said, that's it. You surprised me. I said, because I've been sitting here for 45 minutes. You haven't asked me one question. Oh, well, what did he and say? He got up and stormed <laughs> off. He got up and stormed off. And I thought, good fucking riddance for you. <laughs> that's brilliant well i remember actually the you were wearing the most amazing dress that night i remember it so well and you told and because i asked you if you designed it i think you said you did or or you said you had some of them made by the students at st martin's i can't remember what dress i was wearing that night was it one that was sort of like folded paper no it it was it was pink and it had amazing applique it was it was just very beautiful and incredibly oh, right. made. I'm sure you told me the students had made it. Yeah, most most of my dresses because uh, I run a course every year at St Martin's uh, with the second year students uh, to make me a dress, and so I, you know, they over six weeks I go in every week and sort of shepherd them through the process, if you like, and then at the end I do a sort of slow motion fashion show. Where I because uh, I'm the only model, so it takes a while, you know. Less, there's a 10 minute hiatus. Why you get your frock on and off? <laughs> yeah, but I get them to choose the music and everything, and I really throw myself into it. You know, I try to embody what uh, what I think they want me to uh, mm-hmm. when I come out, and and we and uh, quite a lot of the college all turns out for kind of it for this thing because it sort of drags on for most of the morning. I bet. And then I give prizes, and then I buy. I usually buy at least half because you know I, I'm not I'm not going to pretend that I like some of them. So I usually, if I give them good money at the moment, I think I give five or 600 quid. Oh, but that's each. wonderful yeah. for them because students always need a bit of dosh. I think it's a yeah, brilliant yeah. thing to do. <laughs> it's, it's been a shame, you know, because we haven't done it. We didn't do it last year because of COVID. And it looks like we're not going to do it this I year know. as well, which is a real shame. I bet it's, I, I, it must be so lovely going. They must, it, they must love you as a teacher because you're so much fun. Are you, do you, are you strict with them or are you like you are? You know? I can't bear things like just the simple things really drag me down. Like people not turning up to it on time, mm. you know, that really drags me and just not doing much work and sort of, just general laziness just kind of really irks me. I mean, I think there's three rules. If they ever ask me for any tips, you know, I always say, be nice, turn up on time, put in the hours. You know, that's that's going to take you a long way. If you know, having talent is great, 
But if you do those first three things, you know, yeah. that takes you a good old way. I agree, actually. It, the, it, I, nothing annoys me more if people are, are late. If I can yeah. turn up on time. <laughs> so yeah, I can't bear it. I mean, and, and some people sort of pretend that it's almost sort of part of who they are. And I kind of go, oh, get, get out over of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I tuned, I tuned in last week or the week before because you've got a new art club coming. I loved the last one. Were you going to do that anyway or did that come out of the COVID uh, nightmare? It came out of COVID nightmare, really, because, you know, um, it, we put it together very fast. Brilliant. Uh, as soon as it looked like lockdown was looming, uh, my director said, I, you know, I, we, I, we've got to do something. So we kind of just uh, brainstormed. Uh, it was his idea, but then we kind of just brought, and we didn't know what we were doing for the first week, really, because we, you know, I think it went, it was less than a month from idea to Amazing. broadcast. So I loved, I loved Claire and her bin painting. <gasps> she was my oh. favourite. I think that, that was just the moment that really made me realise um, that it was going to work because, you know, when she said, oh, my primary school teacher said, you know, don't bother with art, you, you haven't got a chance mm. or something. And then there she was. She was she was, she was, was so funny and sweet. Now, I mean, you know, I, one thing I learned doing Art Club is that it's a very different thing from, say, when I'm um, curating a show at the Royal Academy or putting together one of my own shows or using a, a collection of art. I've done several shows sort of curating from other collections. Um yeah, I mean, it's you. You you you've got a different set of criteria that you're choosing things for. You know, you you want a nice story, interesting person, as well as a nice artwork to go with it. You mm. know, and it's and it's it's and of course, what you have to remember is I'm making a television yeah. program. I'm not putting together. I mean, though an art exhibition sort of comes out of it, I am actually making a television program. For me, the lovely thing was seeing most of their reactions. I mean the, the the young lad who made the little little animals that were all yeah. painted, which was Alex. so sweet. And it, I mean, it was so it made me cry actually when he came in and saw them because he was so over. Well, and Claire did as well when she saw her bin painting on the wall. She was yeah, just it's good. It's wonderful. I just so you know we've got a new one coming up, haven't we? Yes, uh, we start at uh, I think it broadcasts the first episode goes out at the end of the month Ooh, i think yeah about the 20 20 something um yeah and we're all you know because now we kind of know what we're doing a bit we're in some ways we're more relaxed but also we want to up our game a bit and make it you know so we'll see how it goes yeah <laughs> um but I, I quite like the winging aspect of it i mean i don't have to overly prepare i'm making artwork and planning artwork for it and and when you know the team are getting together all the guests um, but I haven't got a clue who's going to pop up on the Zoom screen in terms of the public. Brilliant. The other programme I love that you did last year was the um, the one, your road trip in America. Oh, that was, that yeah, was that was amazing. fun. It was amazing. But the the different, if, if people haven't seen this, you should, it's called Grayson's American Road Trip, right? Yeah. yeah and you, you go to Atlanta. With yeah, we do one episode in Atlanta talking about race. Mm -hmm. And then we do uh, one episode in the kind of um, Wisconsin, which was the kind of one of the swing states that uh, I think they voted for Trump by about 0.1 of a percent, you know. And then um, the other one was the kind of liberal elite in the kind of northeast yeah. or New York, Boston area. 
And yeah, because I, I was interested in the culture war, really, and, and the kind of issues that float around and the, the divides in society. And, uh, I, you know, I'm willing to listen to anybody, whether they're a group of Trump bikers, <laughs> you know, or... Um, I love you know, the lady on... who, gave, who stopped you at the gas station and gave you a, a mustard. <laughs> yeah, that was it. I mean, like, having the colourful bike and the levers and everything was, you know, it's really good icebreaker you just mm-hmm. stop at yeah you stop at a gas station and people would just run up to you and say you know can we have a selfie what you're doing and she just came up she she was basically a mustard salesperson it's i think terrible. and so she wanted to get a bit of free publicity <laughs> yeah, she made you hold the mustard up didn't she it's so funny but yeah i thought i, I mean i i love that we were both lee and i love the program but I thought, you know, some of the questions you asked them were very on the nose and very, I'd have been a bit nervous because they were quite cutting some of the questions. But do you think the fact that you, because you were English, because they didn't get offended and they didn't get, it it, it got a bit heated at the round table in, on Martha's Vineyard, a couple of. Yeah, that was probably the most frightening interview I've ever done where I had 15 kind of quite powerful well-educated liberals basically all sat round and i include i kind of accused them of being kind of complicit and maybe a bit complacent uh, in, in and and they were partially responsible for trump getting elected because the liberal elite sort of just didn't understand why people might hate them you know because they were kind of smug patronizing and uh, they dissed the values of, you know, a huge proportion of their fellow Americans. Mm. And so when I accused them of that, in a, you know, and I'd had a few drinks by this point at the dinner party, they took exception to it, you know, and um, felt a bit set up. Um, so I had to somehow, st- you know, I thought, oh, my God, and because we being ethical broadcast, we hadn't got them to sign the release forms before the interview so you know we were all kind of terrified they were going to storm out and not not um oh, yeah, and then sign you... the release form. but they did well that was the weird thing you know we had this kind of little bit of a bust up really on the camera and then they were all nice as pie at the end <laughs> brilliant it was brilliant it's brilliant yeah, it was it was brilliant television actually but i i found it quite um and then the bikers in with that, that those biker lady that one who who had the dime Monty headband? Do you remember? And she had long hair, very yeah, pretty. Yeah. And she was like, who cried? She cried about who, Trump, how much she yeah. loved him because she felt seen. You see, that's the thing. That was what you know, often, you know, the progressive left in people. You know, they're very well educated, and so they over intellectualize things, and they don't give full due to the emotional connection that people feel to things. And Trump, in his kind of weird inarticulate way kind of connected with a demographic you know and it wasn't you know he was I don't know if it was he thought it through but you know he was like the kind of ranting guy in the bar who kind of like you know yeah America's great yeah you know and people kind of connected to that at a visceral level because you shot those before the second the second term didn't you when every we all thought he was going to get in again Oh yeah, I mean, I shot that show in um, in twenty nineteen, mm. and so uh, at that point in the autumn of twenty nineteen, yeah, if you'd have asked me, I'd have said yeah. That the way that, because of this sort of, you know, a, a lot of people not really understanding why he had got elected. Mm. I think no, it was absolutely and, fascinating, and I 
Tele- you can get it on catch up, I think. All you? four. Yeah, yeah all on four. all it's four. Brilliant. Yeah, it's all absolutely four. brilliant about people, about society, about class. And what's interesting to me, because they always say, oh, you know, in America, we don't have any class. They do have class. <laughs> of course it's, they do. You know, because yeah. they always pick on us because we've got a big class system, but it's a different class system in America. Weirdly, it's still very much predicated on a kind of Eurocentric view as well, I think. I mean, if you look at class in America, it still has vestiges of the more European you are, the more upper class you are. And the old Brahmin class of the kind of uh, the the East Coast, you know, they they, they were almost like sort of parodied English people in many ways. They actually, that Boston East Coast accent is you know, is kind of, it's got an English twang. But I think the main divide in um, in America, and which is, you know, also very true here, is between people who've been to university and people who haven't. You know, that's the big divide is education. education. But hasn't, you know, that's yeah. always been, it's always, that's why, you know, at the moment, all these kids missing out on their exams and... Yeah, I mean, it's it's horrible. You know, I'm sort of torn between the two things of sort of like, yes... You know, exams and that are a very important uh, marker and education is incredibly important. I, I do sometimes feel that, you know, the kind of um, the kind of educated, the sort of slightly tick box version of education, mm. I'm not a great fan of because, I'm you know, I'm, I'm into lifelong learning. I'm always learning mm, something. Good. I'm, you know, I learn on the job. <laughs> As you know, as I do, I, I always embark on projects not really knowing what I'm going to do and then sort of. Like when I started pottery, you know, right back about 40 years ago, I was, you know, went straight in and started exhibiting and selling my work while I was still doing evening classes. Wow. And my and my teacher was slightly horrified that I was selling my kind of quite clunkily made pots from a lot more than she would sell one of her beautifully crafted tea bowls for. That's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Did you, did you know, I mean, what, what age did you know you wanted to be an artist or didn't, did it, did it just unfold or did you plan it? Did you have a teacher that kind of encouraged you? Um, yeah. What happened was, you know, until I was 16, I was going to join the military, you know, because, um, you know, when my father was in the RAF, even though he was absent. So there was a sort of mythic connection mm-hmm. to the RAF. And I think all through my childhood, I sort of met. I didn't really thought about it seriously. Um, and then when I was at school, I went to a grammar school that had a cadet force. Okay. And I loved the cadet force because it basically got me out of the house. And I was doing all this sort of running around the woods and going off on camps. And I was a very physical uh, teenager. I was very sort of sporty. And... Um, so I loved all that. Um, and then I think it, it, I had, went through a lot of disruptions in my sort of family stuff. You know, I'd swap between my mother and father and then back again, and it was all very messy. Was it, and that was it of, tough? Was that tough on you? I mean, was it was it unhappy or oh, it, did you kind of? No, it was a nightmare. Oh. It was a complete disastrous sort of um, whirlwind of dysfunction. But, you know, I'm not going to go into that now because it was so much shit was really going down. Mm. And then, um, but it disrupted my kind of, because um, I was being interviewed for Sandhurst and everything. I, be, I was on the track to become an army officer.
when I was about 16, I, and I'd always loved art and making things, and I had a very full imaginary life as a child. And my art teacher just said to me when I was 16, oh, I think you'd do well at art school. And it was like a light bulb moment. It was just sort of like, oh, yeah, I suppose I could. Doing my favourite thing all the time. That sounds like a great idea. I almost like, almost, it was absolutely instant. That's I went, brilliant. that's it. That's what I'm going to do. So then you applied gonna... to go to art school. Which one did you go to? Uh, well, in those days, everybody did a foundation. Mm -hmm. So I went to Braintree, uh, Braintree sort of college and did my foundation, which was good. And I enjoyed that. And then I went on to Portsmouth Polytechnic. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, I, you know, because I, I was so desperate to get away from home that I had to go somewhere where I knew I set my sights really a bit low mm -hmm. somewhere. Not, you know, not to denigrate Portsmouth Polytechnic, but it wasn't, you know, in the in the top rank of art schools at the time. But I knew I'd get in there and I had to get away from home. And Portsmouth was a good fair way away from Essex as well. Oh, and so that was my kind of yeah. criteria. So how old were you? I would have been 19 okay. when I went to art school, yeah. And so you you lived at the college, you lived in, in halls, did you? I, I think I was in a, in digs. A flat, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and whatever. Yeah, that was, I think, but yeah, I mean, I enjoyed my time at college. It was a revelation to me and then, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I always envy people who went to college or uni because I, I kind of, because of what happened to me, I missed all, <laughs> all that because, you know, my life went in another direction, but... I think you I, can always go back at any well, that's time. True. That's true. Never too old to go to that's college. True. Yeah, I, actually, I have thought of that. I, 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 I'm not brave enough to do it. I don't think, but, um, but I do. I do think it was something I missed out on. As amazing as my life has been, and I, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky. That that little bit of it, I think, I wish I could have experienced that. It is, it is important. In those days, you know, it was much easier to leave home and find somewhere to rent. And we were, of course, we didn't pay fees. Yeah. You know, it was all free. So, uh, you know, we were lucky in that. But when young students say to me nowadays, they say, oh, you know, paying fees, it's awful, it's terrible. You know, I think we should be free. I say, yeah, the problem is, is that the country can only afford for like 10 or 15% of students to go to college mm. if, if it's free that's the problem the economics of I know, it but for people who come from you know poor backgrounds they will pass up on going because of the fees i mean yeah i mean yeah i'm i'm at the tail end of that kind of great bulge of kind of post-war um class mobility yeah. i suppose in many ways which is sort of nowadays is is pretty um gone stagnant i'd say you can still apply, apply for grants can't you I think. Oh, yeah. yeah, there are, you know, there are ways. Yeah, for sure. I wouldn't put anyone. Plus, I always say to students who are, you know, are kind of having quibbling about the loan thing. I always say it is a loan. And if you are doing well enough in the arts to, to earn enough to pay back the loan, you're doing really well. That's true. That's true. <laughs> you know, a lot of people, you know, won't be paying their loans back. No, I know. Well, especially in, in, in the world of art, it's quite hard to break in and make a living from it a yeah it's a precarious things. business but that's the i don't know if that's quite i don't want to put people off you know going for the arts because it's an amazing uh world to be a part mm. of but it, you know it, 
you do you are signing up to be poor to a certain mm. extent i mean i never made a living as an artist i mean i i wasn't making what you would call the average living wage mm. until i was 38 oh really yeah so what's what suddenly got you over that line was it just years of doing it and becoming known or did you do was it one oh we you won the turner prize yeah that was a few years later Oh, was it? Yeah, that, that was a, must have really changed your life, no? Uh, well, it makes you, it, it's not the, the passport for sort of guaranteed uh, riches that some people think it is. Um, but it does give you, in my case particularly, it gave me an overnight public profile. Yeah. You know, and I was on the front pages of all the papers the yeah, next right. day. And What year was that? Uh, 2003. Okay. So yeah, I was um, catapulted into, and I had a very good press. You know, the first uh, journalist in the press conference afterwards, he asked me, um, "Are you a lovable character or are you a serious artist?" And I said, (laughs) "And I said, can't I be both?" Uh, (laughs) Well, I think you're very lovable. (laughs) And I've I've sat next to you at dinner, and you are. (laughs) That's good. You heard it here first, folks. I am lovable. I want you to tell me about Alan Measles. What, oh, well, how, he's how, very how important. Did he, oh, I love, I love him. But I want to know where did he come from and how and why. It was your teddy, wasn't it, or something? Yeah. Um, you know, like all babies, you know, I was given a teddy bear for my first Christmas. So he's only nine months younger than me. In, oh. you know, so he's he's getting on now. He's, and, you know, he very quickly became my kind of best buddy. And... I suppose because of what I went through, my father leaving when I was four and, and not getting on with my stepfather. And I kind of inve- invented Alan Measles as a kind of surrogate father, I suppose, in my unconscious. Mm. And he was the kind of um, what I call the benign dictator of my imaginary world, you know. So he he existed as a kind of, uh, kind of idealised masculinity in my unconscious while I was, you know, growing up. And I, you know, I played with toys and models until I was quite old, until I was about 14, I'd say. And so mm-hmm. it sort of had this whole kind of way of operating. And then years, you know, I kept, and he's the only thing I've still got from my childhood. Aww. And then when years and years later, I had an exhibition in um, Japan, mm-hmm. in this lovely museum in a place called Kanazawa. And um, I wanted to do this show called My Civilization, which is this idea that I was not just one artist. I was like an entire civilization. And I thought, I've got to have a God. I've got to have a God. <laughs> and I just thought it, it wasn't really a, any question about it. It had to be Alan Measles. And so that started with that kind of quite jokey notion. Then I realized he was the perfect metaphor for God because a god, you know, religion, why we, you know, why we're so attached to gods and religion is because we grow up with them. We go, you know, a person who's religious as a child, they go every week. So it's reinforced every week and all their family and friends and rituals and music are all attached to this belief system. So, you know, having a cuddly toy, which is your closest friend throughout your childhood, is just like religion in many ways. Mm-hmm. And so Alan Measles became my kind of metaphor for God. So I've, you know, I've done, 
you know, Islamic Alan measles, Christian Alan measles, oh. you know, I've done um, various sort of African and South American versions of Alan measles. He's been everything, you know, he's... Well, that he's, one in the first art club with all the spikes and the buttons, and that's amazing. Yeah, it's, that's kind of, uh, that's a kind of power figure come outsider art, Alan yeah. Mews. And he was the kind of, um, what would I call him, the protective spirit in oh, the yeah. age of COVID. Oh, and he had the vaccine in his tummy, yeah. Oh. <laughs> in a little chamber. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> but yeah, he keeps on giving. He'll pop up again, of course, in this series. I'm, I'm working I on I say, can't yeah. leave Alan Measles out. No. And of course, he's called Alan Measles after my best friend and the fact I had measles. I was going to ask you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, yeah, I had measles when I kind of bonded with him when uh, very young. I had it when oh. I was three or something. Oh, lovely Alan measles. And then why did you why did you call your is it your ortery? Why did you call her Claire? Where did that come from? Sort of fairly random. You know, when I was at um, art college, uh, I was going to go to meet up with some other transvestites. There's like, there's a society, I don't know if it's still going, I think it's still going, called the Beaumont Society, named after the Chevalier de Beaumont, who was sort of one of the most famous cross-dressers in, um, in English history. He was a French guy, actually, but he, he, he ended up his life here in, in London. And um, so the Beaumont Society, I went to a meeting and they insist on you having a femme name, because in those days, you know, you're talking the late 70s here. Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't quite the cool thing and, and the accepted thing that it is so more so nowadays. And so they liked you to remain relatively anonymous. So everybody had a femme name. And uh, my girlfriend just looked, looked at me in a dress and said, oh, you're a Claire. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's pretty random, really. But I just kept it. And, I, you know, I... I just sort of use it as a kind of um, shorthand if I'm going to get dressed up. You know, my wife will say, are you going to be Claire tonight? I'll go, yeah, I'll be Claire tonight. So when you're going to go to like when we met at, well, we did, I don't think we met. Well, maybe we did. I don't know if you've ever met me time. not dressed up, have you? I'm tr- no, you're usually dressed up. Yeah, I'm yeah. trying to think because I remember your dresses because they're so amazing. And I, I think I discussed with you because I cannot walk in high heels. Right. I know I <laughs> was a model, but I could never walk in the <laughs> bloody things. They're, they're, they're dangerous pieces, I think. And and I think I discussed with you, because you walk in high heels so brilliantly. And I, I mean, I wear flat shoes most of the time because they're too too difficult to maneuver. I can't wear a very, I mean, it's the real difficult thing is that is the difference between your sort of ball of your foot and your heel. So mm. I, can, I can't do more than three inches, but I've got pairs that have got like six inch heels and three inch platforms. Oh my god! You know, See, I'd be terrified. Because you're very. I'm, it also like depends on what the cliff. <laughs> it depends on what the heel is like. Like a, a stiletto is much harder, of course, than a, than a more chunky. Well, because the arch is so. I I, I can't balance. I mean, if I do a photo shoot, well, I don't do many anymore. But when I occasionally do them, and and you know, obviously, they you look nicer in a high heel because it makes your legs look longer and everything. So I I take them to the paper where we're doing the photograph. You know, the big yeah. paper that. And I, I get on them. I get somebody to hold them. <laughs> and I climb into the high heels. I think my days of sort of really high heels might be numbered though, because I sort of burst a disc or something uh, last mm. year. And I I was, I was I could hardly walk for three months. For, 
Well, I please I might... don't put high heels on. No, there's high heels. But I went to, I hurt my back a few years ago and I went to um, a chiropractor guy, you know, helped me. And he said the worst thing for women in the world are high heeled shoes. Mm. And if he could have his way, he'd have them banned. Well, I think that, you know, <laughs> you don't see them anymore. I mean, not in COVID times, everybody's walking around in yeah. pajamas and Ugg boots. But, um, mm. uh, you know, even before then, high heels were becoming increasingly rare on the high street. Yeah. You know, I, I'm a kind of, I like my um, Fred Astaire two-tone lace-up yeah. brogues. I've got them in all different colours. I love them. And they I are like the Mary cute. Jane. That's what I like. Oh, yes. I've got <laughs> several of pairs of Mary Jane. across, pairs. right? Yeah, with a strap across, oh, yeah. So I've got so I've got a, quite a few pairs okay. of those. So, but, but when you're going out, say, like the dinner party we met, do you decide on the day whether you're going to go as Claire or as Grayson? My criteria for dressing normally is the sort of, if, if everybody else is getting dressed up, then I'll dress up in you'll a dress. You'll go as Claire. Yeah, because I haven't yeah. got many smart male clothes, um, so I, I, you know, if it's even if it's like a lunch, I'll get dressed up. You know, if I'm meeting okay. friend for lunch in a nice restaurant in town, I'll get dressed up, or even sometimes if I fancy shopping up west, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'll get I dressed heard up that for that. Term for years. Yeah, That's exactly. So I can show my age. My sister used to say that. I've got two older sisters. I remember him being a little girl and my sister saying, I'm going up west tomorrow to shop. And I thought that was so glamorous. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't quite know what it meant, but it sounded glamorous. And do you do your own makeup? Oh, yeah. Over the years, I've become relatively proficient at it, though. I would describe my makeup style as a very talented eight year old. <laughs> You know, because I, I don't want to look too slick in a way. No, like it's, some it's, of the some of these not... drag performers you see on the telly, you know, they're so brilliant with makeup. Oh, you know, they're phenomenal, and I I've kind of I don't want to look quite that slick in a way. I no, quite I like think looking right. a little no, bit. No, I I handmade. was a judge on one of those um, uh, RuPaul Drag Race things. Yeah, and the boys, you know, came out. Some of their makeup was. Ah, well, some of their bodies were yeah. <laughs> amazing. And they look so beautiful and their makeup was unbelievable. I mean, the talent of doing that. Yeah, plus the fact it takes so long. You know, I don't know how long it takes them, but, you know, I can normally go from kind of uh, sort of slightly scruffy old man to the beautiful apparition you see at uh, social events. I can do it in about an hour and a half normally. And do you, and do you have your wigs kind of, have you got lots of wigs or just one that you um, restyle? I never used to wear wigs because I always um, just had, I've, I, luckily I haven't lost my hair. So I, no, I normally have my own hair cut. My only hair is cut in a kind of bob, um, which I, you know, just wore it as that for years. But then I've started wearing wigs just for fun. So I had one made, sort of my, my what I call my uh, Rain Spencer number. Oh, the one with the, the, what, the, the end of art club. Yeah, the big one. With the yeah, that, amazing, that dress coat you had on was incredible. That, that black. was a student number, yeah, made out of dyed chicken feathers, that was. Oh, my goodness. It was amazing. I mean, they are works of art. You'll have, oh, yeah. have you done an exhibition of them? I've shown them a few times as part of a bigger exhibition uh, of my work, you know, when people want to kind of, you know, I'll have like a room of dresses. Brilliant. To kind of introduce me as a persona, I suppose. <laughs> You've got one daughter, right? 
One daughter, Flo, who's 28 now. And is she an artist? She has become an artist. It's quite weird. I mean, I thought I'd put her off art by taking her to too many art galleries as a child. Um, but we always used to do loads of drawing games when we were a kid. And, you know, that was our go-to thing. And if we went to a restaurant, we always took like pens and paper so she could draw while, you know, so she didn't get bored. But then she, when she went to uni, she did a master's in chemistry. Oh, wow. You know, because she wanted to do something academic. But I, 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 she, what she learned more than anything else was she didn't want to hang around with chemists anymore, I think. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> So she never did become a chemist. Uh, and then she went into social media stuff for a while and sort of journalism. And now she, yeah, now she does illustration and she's written a book and Brilliant. she does, yeah. So she does spend a lot of time drawing now. She does pet portraits in lockdown. She's been doing pet portraits. Oh, that, that's what my daughter's been doing. Yeah. They can swap pet <laughs> portraits. But uh, I mean, I've never, I don't think I've ever met a serious chemist, but um, I'm sure they're not as, much fun as artists oh i don't know i'm sure there's fun chem there's fun people in any uh i tell you there's plenty of boring artists i can tell you that <laughs> well I, I don't know i know i've I, I know well one of my oldest best friends is the divine peter blake who i'm sure you know oh yeah i think he might one, we were going to have him on art i think he's going to be an art club i hope, I hope I love he's a bit him. poorly so we couldn't I go know, and see him bless him but he is the, i've known him probably since i was 18 and he's such a sweetheart. He's such an and I and the other one I I know a little bit. I don't know him well. Is David Hockney? Oh yeah. And then we've recently met because Lee grew up in, in Warwickshire, in a, in just out in Coventry actually. And there's an artist called George Shaw. Oh yeah, George. I know George Shaw. Yeah, yeah, he's great. He does these brilliant kind of paintings of the area, the kind of poor yeah. areas in that. I've got so, a George Shaw. I think it's one of the few serious artists that I've yeah. got. I've got one at home. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, we've got one. So Lee met. We met him, funny enough, at a kind of arts do, and Lee said, "I've got to go over and meet George Shaw." <laughs> so he went over Great. and introduced himself, and we've become friends. And him and his wife are really, really nice, and he's he's really lovely. But I think I think most artists are pretty friendly, aren't they? Well, just they're just people. You know, That's I think true. there's this idea that they're this strange other breed that was sort of born as sort of <laughs> behemoths. But actually, you know, artists won't like hearing this, but they're just, you know, they're just ordinary professionals who want to have a nice house and kids and get on like everybody else does. You know, I, I don't think, you know, we're, nowadays we live in an age where the bohemian behaviour that would have been shocking 100 years ago is normal. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, all of the things that, you know, the Bloomsbury group or the Surrealist or the Picasso and his friends got up to, that's how most people behave, you know. You know, they take drugs, they have premarital <laughs> sex, they, you know, they shack up with whoever they want and they make a noise in clubs and whatever, you know, and it's, it's, that's just normal behaviour. Yeah, that's true, actually. The other thing I want to ask you about, you, you love motorbikes, don't you? Oh, yes. Have you I always do. driven a motorbike? Well, I sort of, um, when I was a teenager, I lived in a relatively remote Essex village where the last bus sort of went at about uh, six o'clock. <laughs> so if you wanted to get out, you needed transport. And in those days, a motorbike was much cheaper than a car. Yeah. Nowadays, I would say they're pretty much, you know, there's not much in it. But um, 
yeah so i got into motorbikes there. i never thought that i would in, be a you know my father rode motorcycles i suppose but um yeah then i got into it quite quickly do you ride one in london not often because Good. it's not much fun uh, in london uh, <laughs> but it's just the traffic and uh, you can't go over it you know, it's 20 mile an hour speed limit everywhere mm-hmm. and um it's quicker to go on your push bike yeah, that's true. And now, it, it's ever since the con- congestion charge happened, then there's nowhere to park it because they're that's all true. full up of mopeds. That, that one you had in on your American trip, yeah, that had huge wheel. Did you? Was that custom made? That bike yeah, for you? I designed it and had it made. Yeah, so I just but it had it huge tires, didn't it? Had Much a bigger than back, back tire. Yeah, very tall, thin front tire. Oh, I remember the back tire. Yeah. And also, did you design your leather all-in-one suit? The oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Leather? That was brilliant. I yeah, love that. You know, we wanted to, it was partly as a kind of, you know, visually it looked good in, in the film. Um, did. <laughs> and then also it was a kind of icebreaker with people, you know, like like the women, the, the, the Republican women up in northern Wisconsin, you know, like, <laughs> do you know Elton John? <laughs> when I turned up. Which is good, you know, it gets gets them talking. It does. It break it breaks the ice. Yes. As they say. <laughs> so apart from um preparing for your new oh no, you've shot the art club, have you? No, 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 no. We shoot it very we only shoot it a week before broadcast. Oh my goodness. So you're preparing for that. When will yeah. that start going out? Because at the end of the month. So I think we shoot the first episode, we're shooting it on the 17th, 18th, 19th. And I think it goes out the following Friday, which will be in the this 20th. February. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. That's so we're brilliant. very close to beginning it, yeah. Ooh. And and have you been, you know, because of lockdown, you've obviously been at home yes. like all of us. Have you been doing lots of new artworks? It depends because, I mean, art club, I do art for the art club and that gets me motivated. But I'm often motivated by, you know, having a project. I like to sort of put a, a marker post in the future. And then I like to throw a rope, rope around it and pull myself towards it, if you know what I mean. And of course, at the moment, I've got very few marker posts out there. I've got a couple of, I, one of my passions at the moment is kind of doing live things, like doing theatre shows. I know so, you were telling me that at dinner because I find that terrifying. You get up and just, you said to me, I, get, I don't write it down. I just get up and talk. Yeah, because well, I have my images as kind of my prompts. But uh, yeah, I've been doing that sort of uh, about five or six years now. Um, It came out of my lecturing to art students, really. And I've kind of gradually got more and more theatrical. (laughs) I call it a TED talk with laughs, but I don't know if it's getting beyond that even now. And in the last tour, we had like these little feedback machines where I could poll the audience in real time and ask them questions like, are camper vans labour or conservative? <laughs> Which always, so, you know, that was the kind of question I would ask the audience, and I'd find out it was always labour. If anybody wonders, and so is collecting vinyl. Oh, and really? Kitchen, kitchen islands were always Tory. That's hysterical. So you know, <laughs> this Why? is the kind of, I wonder. That's so... well, that's what I was interested in because I'm interested in culture and politics and sociology and anthropology, and all these things overlap in my show. Are you a big reader? Um, I've always got a book on. You yeah, know, I, I have. You know, I've always I, I tend to alternate between fiction and and nonfiction. Um, 
whatever my passion is at the time, whatever I'm researching, and then I'll yeah. read, you know, then I'll read a spy thriller. You know, it's fine. Yeah. Do you like Joe Nesbo? I think I think I might have read one Joe Nesbo. Ooh. Yeah, I think. Yeah. They're a bit like scary, Joe. some of them. Yeah. If you like, I mean, I like I either like thrillers or I like which you probably wouldn't like romantic novels. I read the whole of the Poldark series, you know, Winston Graham. Yes. I've read the originals, which were three, when it was first done on TV in the 60s, no, 70s. Yeah. And then when it came back, I thought, oh, I'm going to read them again. And there's like 13 because he, he went on writing them. So I sat and read them yeah, all. That's, that's probably an area I, I won't be straying. No, I, I think I think they're probably ladies' books, but they are well, good. No, <laughs> they mustn't be like they mustn't say, say that sort of thing. Why? <laughs> well, you might be right. <laughs> I don't think my husband would. Well, he might enjoy them. It made me want to go and live in Cornwall, actually. Yeah, it's having a moment, Cornwall, at the moment. I think lockdown, people are realizing that London has become a little bit redundant. Yeah, is that yeah that I want to ask you? Do you think you know because of what's happened, and we've all now the last year living this different life, and when please God we get through this, it's going to change the way we live, don't you think? I think some things, yes. I mean, I think we still will need society and social contact and physical contact and be doing things together. These are these are basic human needs, I think. But I think things like homeworking will become much more popular. And so yeah, that, that the housing market might change uh, in that, you know, people won't feel the need to live in a small urban property. They might want to go and live out where they've got a garden, you know, because yeah, if especially you, if, if you've they've been, got kids. Kid, things, yeah. yeah. If you've been stuck with a small child in a small flat in the middle of London, mm. it's not been funny. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. But it'd be interesting to see how it changes that I think the thing that I've apart from my family because you know my daughter and my stepson and our grandchildren we haven't been able to see them through lockdown and I find that really really hard it's yeah my daughter's been very strict we used to call her a safety officer when she was a kid (laughs) because when she was about eight if she was if I let her sit in the front seat of the car she would tell me off for taking my hand off the steering wheel Quite right. She say both <laughs> hands on the steering wheel, Daddy. <laughs> so has she not been visiting. No, no, no. They uh, they no. haven't. Uh, well, we saw them in the summer when it was lifted for a bit. It's my grandchildren I miss the most. It's really, really difficult. And mm-hmm. also going going to the theatre and going out to restaurants. Just the social, as you said, we are social animals. Yeah, I've got this. Uh theatre tour booked for kind of september october november but you know i'm still i'm fingers crossed that we'll be back in the theatres by then but i I don't know it wavers i you know i read something one day and i think oh good we're going to be back in the next day i think "Mm, maybe not i don't think anyone really knows do they until i i I mean i do think hopefully with the vaccine rolling out that um it will change things for the better I think we have to be optimistic. There has been some interesting things. Another thing I enjoy very much is cycling. And, you know, that's, again, you know, it's an, it's uh, it's become even more popular because a few years ago there was this sort of cycling boom around the turn of the century. Um, and then it kind of – all these bicycle shops opened everywhere in London and, you yeah. know, it was like – coffee coffee stroke coffee bar stroke bicycle shops on every <laughs> corner and of course a lot of them struggled but then all of a sudden everybody in the in the 
COVID crisis just wanted to cycle because they don't want to yeah. go on public transport. And no, so that's, yeah, nice. that's, that's a good thing. It is. Although, I, I I mean, we've we've got bikes, but I'll only go on roads that don't have cars. I'm too, I'm too scared to go on proper roads. But I think with bicycle lanes, probably that has helped a little bit. Yeah. Although the drivers hate bicycle lanes. <laughs> yeah, they do. I loved it. It was a lovely quote on social media the other day. Someone said um, it was when it when the snow fell and they said, if you grit the cycle lanes, it shows that you care about a kid on a 50 quid bike as much as an adult in a 50,000 pound car. You know, I think that's one of the weird things, because whenever I'm on my bike, I always like to remind drivers, there's one of me and one of you. Your your lump of shit is just happens to be bigger and heavier. I know, but you're in, you're much more vulnerable on a bike. But then I I mean I mean I'm a car driver and I I think I drive pretty safely. I'm and not, that's a myth a lot of people buy into, me included. What? That they're a good driver. I am a good driver. <laughs> I'm a very I'm a very careful driver. But I've had a few really aggressive bike people. Oh yeah, no, I think there are. But they you know, hate you. <laughs> well, if you, you know, a mild, a mild um, sort of uh, tap for a car driver is a life-threatening experience for a cyclist. <laughs> so you know, got to have some empathy there for the for the weaker party. No, I know. No, and no, I listen. The last thing I want to do is is hurt anybody. But um, it just and most most of them are fine. But occasionally, I've had a couple them, that them 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 cyclists them, them cyclists. No, I mean it'd be brilliant if it was like in 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 Holland where everyone rides bikes. I'd I'd ride a bike in London if all the cars went away. Well, they might do. They might. They very well might. Well, it's been so lovely talking to you and seeing you. <laughs> yeah. We haven't seen you for ages. Yeah, I miss bumping into you. I know. Well, the, actually, the last time I think it was um, was it the summer exhibition you very kindly invited us to. Oh yeah, when I was that when I was the uh, was that was I hosting that week? Oh no, I host the party anyway. They like me to be the host of the party. Yeah, every- yeah. We came and then we went up and had a little bit of dinner. Very nice pies, if I remember. Yeah, because they asked me. They, I get consulted on um, the menus and everything because the, the dinner afterwards used to be this kind of more formal affair. And I said no. By the time people have been standing up, you know, and, and swigging it back for three hours, the last thing they want is to sit and wait for their food. So I just said, That's as soon brilliant. as people sit down, get a pie in them. Yeah, we had pie, pie and mash, I think. It was delicious, I remember, because I was starving, because we usually eat a bit earlier. So by the, I think it was about nine o'clock we got up there, and it was absolutely lovely. Anyway, I'm going to love you and leave you. Okay, Thank you for joining me. I'm really looking forward to Art Club. Thank you. Yeah, and we're looking I, forward to it. I shall be watching. Mm-hmm. And um, give my love to Philippa. Yeah, love to Lee. Yeah, he sends his love. And hopefully see you when we can. Ah, <laughs> oh, that was so much fun talking to Grayson. He's such a lovely guy. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And don't forget to tune into his art club. It's fascinating. And, um, and catch up on those American road trips. They're fabulous. And have a nice week. If this is your first time listening to Tea with Twiggy, please do remember to tell your friends. You can also subscribe for free on your podcast app and listen to all my previous guests. 
If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers, Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye. just heard a stripped media production.